Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. the city in Nineveh and saw the evil things the people were doing. He told his prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against the city. Jonah heard God, but he didn't obey. Instead, he got on a ship headed in the opposite direction. God made a bad storm strike the ship. The sailors were afraid. They wanted to know who caused the storm. They cast lots to find out whose fault it was. When the lot said it was Jonah's fault, they questioned him. Jonah admitted that he was a prophet who had run away from God. He told the sailors to toss him into the sea. As soon as they did, the sea grew calm. But Jonah didn't drown. Instead, he was swallowed by a huge fish. For three days and nights, Jonah stayed alive in the fish. He prayed to God to thank God for saving him. God heard Jonah and caused the fish to spit him on dry land. This time, Jonah obeyed God. He went to Nineveh and told the people that God would destroy the city in 40 days. The people listened to Jonah's message from God and were sorry for the wrongs they have done. They went without food and put on clothes called sackcloth to show they were sorry. God saw that they were sorry. He decided not to destroy the city, and that's it. Hey, welcome back to our live stream again. We're going to give this one more go. I think it's working. Before we get into our text this morning, we are going to take communion at the end of the message. So I'm going to give a couple updates on life at CBC for about 30 seconds. So if you haven't got anything around you that resembles bread and some kind of juice or drink, go find it now so you can partake at the end. Uh, And while you're doing that, a couple things just as a heads up from our CBC family. The elders met a couple times last week, and you probably got an email that we are going to reopen our church services on Sunday morning starting next Sunday. So that's big news for us. It's great news for us. It means that we're going to do it as safely as possible, which means we're going to have limited capacity and you have to sign up before you show up. So on Tuesday of this week, you'll see that we're going to go live with signups on our website and you're going to get a video that kind of walks through what it's going to look like, pretty similar to what it did when we reopened in June. So you'll get all the information you need to join us if you want to, but if not, we're still going to run this live stream if this is what you're comfortable with. Because right now, like we've said for months now, I don't think there's a right and wrong decision. I think there's a right decision for your family. And so as the, as the church, we want to come alongside you and support you in whatever decision you make. So we're reopening. That is very exciting. And we can't wait to see some people in person next week or just keep seeing you online, right? Cool. So our text this morning, our story this morning, and this is our last week in our series on Grown Up Gospel. 
when we really look at how we were taught the stories of the Old Testament as kids and ask the question, have we grown up our understanding of those stories or has our understanding of those stories not allowed us to grow up our understanding of God? Because if we hold on to a six-year-old understanding of God when we're 36 years old, in my case, for example, then sometimes those two things don't line up, don't mesh up. Sometimes we don't see a clear picture of who God is. And so we've walked through some pretty popular stories, the headliners in the Old Testament, right? Adam and the apple, Noah and the flood, Joshua and Jericho. We've walked through some pretty big stories, and today we're at one of my all-time favorites, Jonah and the whale, or the big fish. And you heard it read just a couple minutes ago, but I think one of the biggest things that we have to deconstruct when we grow up our faith is this idea of who God is, this, this idea that God is for discipline and delights in discipline when his people disobey, this moving into, and I've heard it all the time, right? It seems like the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are different gods. One takes pleasure in punishment, and one takes pleasure in grace. This story is about a prophet that ran away from God. The story, when I was taught it growing up, was all about the righteous punishment that Jonah got from God. And he did his time in jail, three days in a fish. So I asked this week a few people what, what they heard growing up when it came to punishment. And there's all these phrases that we use, right? There's all these phrases we, we use idioms for punishment. Uh, one person I talked to said their least favorite was always when they were being punished, when the parents would say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. How do you how do you reconcile those two things? If you got spanked as a kid, does it really hurt you more, right? Emotionally, maybe, but not physically. Uh, another one said to me that they said that their parents always said, "I do it because I love you," and that made them frustrated. Somebody said that they were always told that they needed an attitude adjustment, and that adjustment sometimes looked like paddles with with holes drilled out in the middle. You know, if you came from that line of thinking or school of thought. We have these ways to talk about punishment. One of my favorites was always, you know, if you aren't doing the right thing, then you're cruising for a bruising. That just sounds terrible now, but I heard that growing up quite a bit. In the Bible, you'd say things like spoil the rod and, or spare the rod and spoil the child. We use these idioms for punishment. And then the problem is, and there's nothing wrong with divine punishment. My point here is, I don't know if that's this story though. And what we have to understand getting into Jonah is really it's a story about a God who chases. This whole story is about a God who chased down his person when the person tried to run as far as he could away from God. And before we get into our text, we have to understand something about the character of God. He chases people down. From the beginning, when sin entered in Genesis 3 to you and me, our God runs after a wayward people, not the other way around. So this is a story about God chasing, and where we're starting is kind of what I've been told growing up, is that God maybe didn't chase Jonah down to give him the punishment he deserved. Maybe he did it for another purpose, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we get into it, we're going to do what we do at CBC. We start our mornings by praying, and we pray throughout our service because prayer realigns our perspective with the perspective of God, and we need our perspective realigned because fundamentally we live in a culture of critique, and as the Church of Christ, we are called to be collaborators to the conversation of faith, contributors to it. And so we need to disassociate ourselves oftentimes with the perspective that seeps into our life from the world that is critical of everything and say this morning, what does God have for me? 
This morning, what is God trying to teach me? This morning, what is the Holy Spirit bringing out in the text that's living and active because God is near? And so we're going to take just a minute and pray and reorient ourselves again. I'm going to ask that you pray for you. A quick prayer, just that God might teach you something this morning. And then I'm going to you pray for me that I do a good job with a pretty well-known text. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that we can be here. I'm thankful that we can open your word. I'm thankful that you're a God that chases. As we open the text this morning, teach us, Holy Spirit, show us what you have for us this morning so that we might look more like Jesus, that we might love Jesus more, that we might just have a deeper understanding for the greatness of your grace today when we leave and see that we all need you. And ask just if you're comfortable, spend a couple seconds and say a prayer that God might do something in your spirit this morning through the Holy Spirit. And ask that you pray for me that I might do a good job teaching the Word of God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, wherever they're at. That's right. Amen. If you got a Bible, we're going to be in Jonah. And it's funny, I was putting together this message this week and really coming into the last couple weeks. And I initially was just going to be in Jonah chapter two, because that's where I wanted to go. That's the text when he's in the belly of the whale. But as I got into it more, I realized that I'm kind of going to try and give a big picture of the whole book. And that scares me, because the last time I taught through Jonah, it was an eight-week series, everybody. So we're going to do our best to walk through kind of the big picture highlights of Jonah and see the overarching theme, the overarching kind of principles that come out from the text. And so we're going to start in verse 1, because it's always a good place to start. It says this, the Lord's message came to Jonah. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about prophets. Jonah was a prophet for God. It was, a, it was a construct, it was an authoritarian position in an Old Testament Jewish world. He spoke, he was the mouthpiece of God to the people of God. And that was a big position. Jonah was a prophet of God. So when it says the Lord's message came to Jonah, that's not God enlisted five or six people to see who would bite. He's not pulling up a sign-up genius saying, serve if you want to. He's saying, this is my message to you. And when God gives a message to the prophet of God, it's a serious thing. It's so serious that if you didn't do it, you, you died. In 1 Kings 13, we have a story where literally the prophet of God disobeyed God and God sent a lion and killed him. And this is why he did that. You might say that sounds horrible, and it does sound horrible. But why he did it was because if somebody speaks for God in a construct where that is the only mouthpiece his people had to hear the word of the Lord, don't mess it up because God's serious about who he is. Because we can't take lightly people that defame the renown, the glory, or the name of our God. It's kind of like in college, I had a prof who, uh, I think it was an English prof, and, and she said, for every letter, for every uh, grammatical error I find in your paper, I'm going to dock you a whole letter grade. A whole letter grade. You miss a period, you go from an A to a B. You miss a comma in the next sentence, B to a C. And her point is, we're going to be serious about writing well. What we take seriously often reflects in the repercussions if we get it wrong. God says to his prophets, say exactly what I say, when I say to say it, so that people might know who I am. And so Jonah knew when God called him out, Jonah knew what was asked of him to talk to the people about the character of God. And in the next sentence, we see that he said, go to Nineveh 
and, and pronounce judgment against its people because of their wickedness. It's come to my attention. Instead, Jonah immediately headed off to Tarshish to escape from the commission of the Lord. Tarshish was literally, Nineveh's here, Tarshish is here, 3,000 miles in the very opposite direction. It wasn't a neighboring city or suburb. He fled in the opposite direction from where God wanted him to go. And a couple things about Jonah here. One is, I think Jonah gets the Thomas treatment, right? So Thomas, we all know when we say Thomas, Thomas is doubting Thomas. That's his highlight. That's defining who he was. And, and, And I think we have to understand that Jonah was a pretty good prophet. There are other texts in the Old Testament where God called Jonah to go and do and be and proclaim, and he did it, and he listened to God. We can't let Jonah's most disruptive work or his kind of worst action define his entire life. I wouldn't want to be defined by my worst day either. So Jonah gets the Thomas treatment, and we have to know that adds depth to his story. Something had to be seriously wrong if an obedient prophet decided to run the other way, an obedient prophet that knew the cost of running from and disobeying God. What it doesn't say in the text, but it implies in the text is Jonah running away, is Jonah choosing death over obedience. He was opposed to going to Nineveh. And there's a couple reasons why. We're going to see big picture in the end, his real reason, but a couple other ones. Nineveh, they were a group of the Assyrian um, people, and they were bad. And I don't say bad, like they were kind of bad. They were really awful, violently aggressive. You can read about it if you Google it. But they used to actually mark their territory by capturing Israel people and putting heads on stakes as fences around their properties. They were not good people. Jonah was probably scared. I would be too. This wasn't, you know, go to the biggest megachurch in the country and tell them God is good. This is go into enemy territory where they already don't like you and tell them something that's hard to hear. I'm thinking Jonah thought he was dead anyway. (laughs) So Jonah runs in the opposite direction because he feared for his own safety because his people didn't like these people. In about 40 years, these people are going to completely take over his people and enslave them. There's going to be a whole captivity period. And so Jonah is really wrestling with the idea of going to these people that he doesn't like. And that sets our tone for what we talked about at the beginning. This is a story of a God who chases. So Jonah, he ran in the opposite direction. He, he went to Tarshish and he got on a boat. He went to Tarshish and he got on a boat. And what we see next is God chasing his prophet. The text says, but the Lord hurled a powerful wind on the sea. Such violent temptress arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break up. And what it says next is literally that even the people in the, the ship, these sailors were so afraid they thought they were going to die. And what we see in the text, really, just because we got to back it up a little bit and do some unpacking theologically. So often I see people tie things together in the scriptures that don't go together. And so we might say, well, there's a hurricane last week. Whose personal sin caused that hurricane? And that's not how God operates. Not all sin causes storms, everybody, right? But what the writer's trying to do here is tie together the fact that Jonah ran and God is chasing him. What he's saying is that Jonah's sin of disobeying God led him to a place that was pretty unstable. I love what Tim Keller in his book on Jonah says about it. He said, the Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin, but it does teach that every sin will bring you into difficulty because we go against the rhythms of God's ways. He says, all sin has a mighty storm attached to it. This is a story about God chasing his people. Jonah runs and God says, I'm not going to let you run because you are my prophet. And so the storm comes up and Jonah goes down and goes to sleep. It's kind of like he's severely depressed and he's already given up because he knew what he was doing when he ran in the first place and he knew the God that he served. His faith never wavered in the power of God. 
And we see it in the next sentence. In, in, in verse 6, these, these sailors are so upset. They throw all their cargo over, and they say, we're going to die if something doesn't change. And they say, okay, everybody pray to your God. Something's happening here that we can't fix. So that's what we do when we feel completely out of control as we default to the divine. Pray to the gods because I can't fix it anymore, right? And so they say, pray to your God and nothing changed. And they go down and they get Jonah. They say, how are you sleeping? And they say this, get up, cry out to your God. Perhaps your God might take notice of us so that we might not die. And Jonah's response is telling. He says to these people, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Basically, Jonah says to these people, they say, we got to figure out whose God is doing this. And Jonah says, it's mine. My God made all this that's rising up against us. And he said to them in verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that the sea will calm down for you because I know it's my fault that you are in this severe storm. He was willing to die. There's a whole lot of other things you can teach on this. In the middle of this text, if you read it, what happens is they try to row back to shore to drop Jonah off because they didn't want to kill him because his God was doing this, and they were probably afraid that his God would be more um, angry at the people that killed his person, and, and they tried, and God picked up the winds said, I'm not letting you go back because here's the deal. When God chases us, it's to change us, and he wasn't letting Jonah go back to the way it was. He said, I'm chasing you for a purpose, and that's to change you. So you're not going to go back to the shore and walk around like this didn't happen. I haven't done what I came here to do. One author said it like this. I liked it. God is both too holy and too loving to either destroy Jonah or to allow Jonah to remain as he is. And God is also too holy and too loving to allow us to remain as we are. God chases Jonah. He chases me. He chases you. And he chases us so that he might change us. This is a story about how God changed us when he chases us. This is a story not necessarily about punishment. So in our story, it says that they picked Jonah up and they threw him into the sea and the sea stopped raging. See, Jonah knew what he was doing as a prophet of God running from God. He knew it. And once again, this is the second time we see that he's choosing death on purpose. When I was told this story, it's hard sometimes growing up because we know the end of the stories that we're reading because you've probably heard them in Sunday school several different times. And so you think, well, yeah, Jonah knew that he was going to get swallowed by a whale, and so he dove into the sea, and he just took his lumps. And that's, that's not what's happening here. Jonah didn't know that. Jonah thought he was going to go into the sea to die. He, he had this contract, essentially, with God, where I'm going to do what you want me to do, but I know the cost of disobeying, and he chose to disobey anyway. And so it's like my, my daughter is going to turn two in two weeks. And last year for her one-year-old birthday party, I have a brother and he said, what does your kid want? I said, absolutely nothing. We have more things than we need. And he said, how about a ball pit? I thought he was joking. So I said, yeah, sure, get me a ball pit. He got me a ball pit. And he got me 200 extra balls just because he wanted to hate me for a year. And so you got to understand that my daughter loves this ball pit. We recently found it again. And her favorite thing to do is to pick it up and to dump it. These balls go everywhere. Do you know how long it takes to pick up 200 balls all over your house? Put them back in this ball pit just to watch my daughter pick it up 10 seconds later and dump it all out again? infuriating. So now we have a rule. When she sits in this ball pit, if the balls come out, Eleanor comes out, right? And we say it again and again and again. If the balls come out, Eleanor comes out. She knows. If you do this, this happens. She's two, but she's highly reasonable, maybe. And so literally, we're sitting the other day, and I say, Eleanor, if the balls come out, Eleanor comes out. And so she slowly picks up two balls, and she looks at me. I can't make this up. She looks at me from the corner of her eyes and she kind of grins a little bit and she slowly starts picking the balls up and moving them to the edge of the ball pit. And I say, Eleanor, if the balls come out, 
Eleanor comes out, and she drops the balls out and then starts smiling, right? Okay. One, I don't want to know what the teenage years are going to be like. That's just foreshadowing. Two is uh, she got out because that's the construct we entered into. There was no grace there. There was just punishment because she disobeyed and she knew it, right? She knew what she was doing, which is why she did it wryly in all the different ways. Jonah jumps into the sea knowing full well this is probably his death because he disobeyed God. And that's when we get into chapter two. Chapter two is Jonah's prayer. It's Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish. And what it does is it kind of gives us insight into what he was thinking when he was in the fish. And so I'm just going to read a lot of chapter 2, and I'm just going to kind of interlay some thoughts in between. But the first verse says, The Lord sent a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days. Again, I, I, I guess in my mind, I thought as a kid that God sent the fish from the beginning, like kind of Moby Dicked him, picked him up off the bow of the, the deck of the ship and swallowed him. Like, that's what you get for disobeying God. You get the belly of the fish and it probably smells pretty bad. But this prayer tells a different story. This prayer tells a story of a desperate man who needed God in the end. So Jonah starts praying and he says this. He said, I called out to the Lord from my distress and he answered me. From the belly of Sheol, I cried out for your help, and you heard my prayer. What we see is an attitude change from Jonah. When faced with death, he got scared and called out to a God who saves, even though he completely disobeyed and ran away. When he was scared, he said, God, I don't want to die anymore. When he was faced with death, I think he realized that what he did was a mistake. And so he cries out from God, to God from the belly of the fish. I think what this does is show me a couple things, but one, this whole story so far has been God chasing and Jonah running away at, at pretty great lengths. God is chasing and Jonah's running away and time and time and time again, he has chances to come back to God and he doesn't. And finally he cries out when he's almost dead. I, I don't know how many times I'd forgive somebody that betrayed me. I don't know how many times I'd forgive somebody that ran the other way when I asked for help or that blatantly said, I don't want anything to do with you and your plans. Jonah cries out to God from the middle of certain death. And then he goes on and he said, I thought I'd been banished from your sight, that I would never see you again or your holy temple. Water engulfed me up to my neck. The deep ocean surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I went down to the very bottoms of the mountains. The gates of the netherworld barred me in forever. And it's poetic there. But what... Jonah was doing is saying, I ran so far and I called out to you, but I didn't think that I'd reach you because I was too far gone. He said, I thought I'd been banished from your sight. Rightfully so. I thought that I, I not only literally ran from you, but figuratively, figuratively fell away from you in the ocean. I thought I was too far gone for your grace, too far gone for your forgiveness, too far gone for redemption. The idea here that Jonah's writing in his prayer is that we are never too far gone for God's grace. And our rebellion is never bigger than his love. And that's just something I need to hear time and time again when I feel like I've done too much, I've been too wrong, I, I can't take back X, Y, and Z. It doesn't mean there's not consequences. He was in the belly of a fish for a few days. But it does mean that we can't outrun God's grace. So he said, I thought I was never going to see you again. <laughs> I kept falling away and falling away and falling away. I cried out to you. And then it says, but in the middle of that. Verse six, but you brought me up from the pit, O Lord. When my life was ebbing away, I called out to the Lord and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. And what we get is this idea that, that God saved Jonah. 
And this is one of the pivots, and maybe you've heard it before, but it blows me away every time. I always thought that Jonah was a a method of punishment for disobedience, but really, the story of Jonah isn't about God's creative methods of punishment, because this is a fish. It's really a bigger story about his creative means of grace. He was going to die, and the fish saved his life. It's not a a method of discipline for a disobedient person. It's a means of grace for somebody that that God loves that can't outrun God's grace. The fish saved his life. He ran, he ran, he ran. He ran, he ran, he ran, and he finally said, okay, God, I need you, and God didn't hesitate to save him. The grace of God is bigger than our rebellion, no matter how far we feel like we've ran from God. And and that matters. To see the fish here as a means of grace and not a method of punishment, that matters because it fundamentally changes our perspective of how we see God. Nick talked about it last week with, with Peter when he's walking on water and he falls and, and Jesus says, you little faither, or how could you have such little faith? He says, I don't think Jesus said that. It's really good. You should go back and watch it. I don't think Jesus said that to mock him or to shame him. I think he said that to say, hey, you've done a great job, but keep trusting me. It's not a God who looks down and waits to dole out punishment. It's a God who looks down and can't wait to give more grace. It changes our perspective on what God is doing right in our midst. And that changes how we see God working in our world. I I don't like it when people in the Jesus tribe, when Christians walk around all day saying that we're deserving what we get and we're such a wicked generation and we're so corrupt and God's going to punish us and fill in the blank there. Again, there's a time and place for punishment, but the story of the gospel seemingly is a story of the grace of God that chases down a rebellious people. I think as, as followers of Jesus, our job is to see the grace and not the punishment oftentimes. To say that in the middle of rebellion, God saves, even when we have ran all the way away. So I think as followers of Christ, we are called to see through the lens of grace, not through the lens of punishment. I think that's the story of Jesus. That's a hope-filled story, not a doomsday-filled story. I was told this as a kid from a doomsday perspective, not one of grace. So let me tell you how that plays out. Practical example. So when the world shut down in mid-March, you know, Sundays are a big deal for church people, especially for people with my job. Sundays are kind of the highlight of our week. It's when we gather all the people together, we worship God, it's a big day, and, and, and you feel pretty good about it. And then we shut down, and we didn't do Sundays. And we started to film on Thursdays instead, and so I had this Sunday morning that was different. For the first time, I've been in this church for almost 11 years. For the first time in almost 11 years, I had nowhere to go on a Sunday morning. I had nowhere to be, I had nowhere to teach. I was at home with my family and my two-year-old that dumps the balls everywhere. And it was weird. The first couple weeks were difficult. You have some identity questions that rise up there with this job. But, but the more it got into it, I could have sat there and said, man, this is terrible and this is horrible and I want my church to open again, which I did and do. But seeing it through the lens of grace is, man, I got three months to be with my families on Sunday mornings and I might not get that again because of my job. And that's okay. Seeing it through the lens of grace and not the lens of punishment changes our perspective and points people towards the hope that Jesus brings, even in dark situations. It's not about the punishment. It's about the grace. The story is about God's creative means of grace. And let me tell you what grace does. Fundamentally, grace is a better, is a, is a, a more full, is a richer medium to change people than punishment ever is. So he says at the end of his prayer, but for me, I promise to offer a sacrifice to you with a public declaration of praise. I will surely do what I promised. He comes back and says, I'm going to go, I've changed. I'm going to go do what you asked me to do, not because God punished, but because God saved. I think that's 
One of the biggest things I see from this that I need to remember is, again, there's time for punishment and there's time for discipline and there's time for us to feel the weight of the choices that we have chosen. But at the same time, fundamentally, to change the hearts and lives of people, grace is a better motivator. That's what Ephesians 2 talks about. God changes and chases us through encounters with grace. That's what this fish is for Jonah. And so we speak in the language of grace as followers of Christ. Speak with the hope of grace as followers of Jesus. Because grace fundamentally changes action. So, so what that means for some of us, when we've tried to follow God and follow God well, and we're kind of a checkbox kind of people, you know, the type A's I'm talking about, where I need to be better at, I'm not as patient as I want to be, I need to be more X, Y, and Z to live into the calling of Jesus. Maybe this story teaches us that the best way to be a better follower of Jesus is to understand a deeper version of God's grace for us not just try harder to check the boxes. And that if we understand the grace of God, it motivates us to pursue a life that mirrors Christ. Encounters with grace are the way that God chases us and changes us. And here's the deal. Jonah went, and now we're in chapter three, so we're plugging right along here. Jonah went and he got to Nineveh and he said, at the end of 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. It's five words in the Hebrew. It's, it's a pretty callous way to say that you're all going to die. It's, it's, a, it's a really weird way if you're a prophet, by the way. Most prophetical words against people had a structure. You'd say, here's what you're doing wrong, here's how you're going to fix it, and here's who's going to bring this calamity on you, right? But he didn't do that. He just said, you guys are going to go away in 40 days. Have fun with that. I'm out, right? But that's not exactly what typically is done of a prophet because Jonah didn't like these people. I think he didn't want to be there still, even though he's following God. I think he's doing what he's supposed to do as the prophet of God because he met, he had an encounter with the grace of God, but he didn't want to be there. He didn't like these people. He wanted to make it short and sweet, and he wanted them to die. Just to be honest, he wanted them to go away. That word there, when you look at the, the text, it says in 40 days, it'll be overthrown. It's interesting because we would look at the rest of it. They're going to repent, and God's going to say, hey, I won't destroy you because he's gracious. Big theme today, everybody, because he's gracious. And, and that word overthrown there, actually, you might look at this and say, well, it didn't come true. His prophecy didn't come true. It did. That word overthrown in the Hebrew is used a couple different ways. There's a positive and there's a negative. And so the negative is literally destroyed. We see it in Genesis with Sodom and Gomorrah. Same word talking about the idea that God's going to overthrow or destroy a place. But then that word also literally means not just destroyed, but transformed. We see it in 1 Samuel 10 with Saul. It says that the Holy Spirit overthrew, essentially, his spirit, and he, he changed into something better as the Spirit of God landed on the first king of Israel. And so literally what that text says, he says, in 40 days you will be overthrown, and they were. They were completely transformed because of this prophecy. His words actually came true. And what this does is it's going to rock Jonah's world because it shows us that God doesn't just show grace to his people. He shows grace to all people. And this blows Jonah away. This is an adverbial clause on how great the grace of God is. And this is what Jonah didn't understand. It's this idea that if you were a hundred times worse than you are, which is what Jonah thought they were, if you were a hundred times worse than you are, your sins would be no match for his mercy. This whole book is about God extending grace as he chases and changes people, whether it's Jonah or the Ninevites, the people that killed Jonah's people. And really what it gets into is our response to grace. And that's what I love about this book. 
is it not just tells us about the depth of the grace of God or the, the changing nature of the grace of God or how God charges after us, chases after us with encounters of grace. It doesn't just stop there. It challenges how we respond to grace. Because there's two ways. The first way is what you see when grace was shown to Jonah. He says at the last of chapter 2, I'll surely do what I have promised. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's really happy about not dying. <laughs> I can't blame him. I would be too. I think the first thing that we have to understand is when people are shown um, just grace in any capacity, it's something worth celebrating. In big ways, like I didn't die, and in big ways, like we do baptisms here to mark and celebrate God's grace covering someone um, when, when they were sinners and now they are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Those are big moments we celebrate, but we also celebrate grace in small ways every day. Grace is something, whether it's from a salvific standpoint of Jesus to a little standpoint, is always celebrated. I was at a coffee shop, I think Friday morning. I woke up in the morning and my wife's still asleep and I get the kid up in the morning. And we usually do this routine where I make her his pancake sandwich and she helps, doesn't really help, she thinks she helps, it's adorable. Really, it's just a game of please don't stick your whole fist in the jelly jar. So we make a pancake sandwich and then we make coffee for mom. So instead that day, I thought I was going to be a superhero dad and just gain a lot of points for the weekend. So I said, hey, let's go to this local coffee shop, get some coffee for mom, and I'll get you a blueberry muffin. And so we go, and we get in the car, and we're waiting in line in the drive-thru, and I pull up, and this has never happened to me before. I've heard stories of it. I pull up, and this little barista lady said, hey, the person in front of you paid for your drink and your muffins. I said, that's so sweet. I did nothing to deserve that. I didn't earn that. I went back home. I saw my wife and I said, somebody, somebody paid for it. it. made it a good day. I celebrated in little ways, the little displays of grace that we see. It's how we should respond to grace is with celebration. The problem is that's not how we respond all the time because God shows grace to these people. And Jonah says in chapter four, this displeased Jonah terribly and he became very angry. But I thought grace was supposed to be celebrated. The problem is sometimes we don't celebrate grace because grace can be a cause for celebration, but it can also expose the condition of our hearts. We can do both those things. So grace is a celebration when it happens to us, but so often when people are shown grace that we don't feel deserve it, it becomes less of a celebration and it causes anger in us. That's a problem. Because the thing we have to fight when we talk about grace is this idea that I deserve it more than you. Because if we're talking about deserved grace, then we take away from the gloriousness of grace in the first place. The more you don't deserve it, the better the grace is. And so if we find these moments when we challenge grace that's given, what we're really saying is that I'm more worthy of grace than you are. When we find moments when we see people that God saves, when we see people that God shows grace to, when we see people that don't get the punishment we think they should get and instead get the grace that we feel like we deserve, what we've done is say that really we don't have a relationship with God based on grace but merit in some small ways. Jonah had a problem because he thought he deserved grace more than these people. And so when God showed grace instead of celebrating, you know what he did? <laughs> he got angry. We live in a world full of, of self-righteousness and nationalism and ethnic rivalries. And it's not all that different from Jonah's day because we live in a divided world where we think some people don't measure up to our idea of good and don't deserve God's grace. So when grace is shown, we don't celebrate it like we should. But that's a problem because our God chases and changes through encounters with grace. He trades in the currency of grace. But we, we want to build these constructs that make us seem like we are more deserving of it. We still celebrate it. 
when it happens to us. So let's go back to the coffee story. So I'm in my car, and this person buys my coffee. And, and let's just acknowledge the elephant in the room this morning. Yes, yes, I have an amazing mustache now. I know, I know. You've been thinking about it all morning long. We got some texts about it when we had to reboot our live stream. And I'm not kidding you. I'm going to admit something to you that is not easy for me to admit. That was my first morning with the mustache. So I went with this mustache, and I thought to myself, I'm sure she looked in the rearview mirror, saw the mustache, and said, I want to buy this coffee. I did something to deserve this gracious gift that somebody gave me. We put ourselves in places where we think we've earned it. It's subtle, but it happens. And when that happens, we're not fully able to extend grace to others who we feel like don't deserve it. That's one response to it. Another response would be, so I pull up in this spot. And this barista says, hey, they bought your stuff. And I was really conflicted there. Because I, I thought to myself, I, I, need, I need to buy the coffee for the people behind me. I need to earn this grace because otherwise I'm not worthy of it. And, and I'm not kidding. I, I had like an internal battle and I thought about this text. And what I'm going to say next probably doesn't make me seem like a great pastor or person. But I just sat there and I said to myself, you know what? I, I'm not going to buy coffee for the person behind me. I'm going to sit in this grace and be awkward and not really enjoy it because it's showing me that I don't deserve it. So next week when I go again, I'll probably buy coffee for the person behind me. But I had to realize that it made me uncomfortable because I didn't do anything to deserve it. And no matter what I did next, didn't merit it or make it better or make it worthwhile. So my point is, God doesn't see what you're going to do tomorrow and say, that's why I gave you grace yesterday. It's a hard thing for us to wrestle with in a meritocracy when we feel like our actions earn us something. And that's why we have a hard time celebrating grace for other people. One commentator, it's a long quote, I'm going to read it though. Said, as long as serving God fit into Jonah's goals for Israel, he was fine with God. As soon as he had to choose between the true God and the God he actually worshipped, he turned on the true God in anger. Jonah's particular national identity was more foundational to his self-worth than his role as a servant of God of all nations. The real God had been just means to an end. He was using the God to serve his real God. My point is, if we find places where we can't celebrate the grace that's given to others and that God gives, we have some false gods we have to root out. Because God is a God who trades in the currency of grace. And that's the real reason why Jonah didn't want to go in the first place. <laughs> because he actually, in chapter 4, quotes Exodus 34, when God says about himself, I am a good God, I'm slow to anger, I'm compassionate, and in, in, in my mercy abounds to all generations and generations and generations. Ultimately, Jonah says, I knew you were going to do this, and I can't celebrate you being gracious to people I don't think are worthy of it. He said, so he goes back to his statement that he makes several times, I, I just want to die. And he says it. And this is the hard part, and in my, my opinion, probably the best part of this book, is there's no resolution. And so often we tell stories that have cute bows tied on top that end in ways that are either happy or sad, but they end in ways that we can make sense of. This doesn't, the last words that Jonah says, the last words that Jonah says in this book is, I wish I would die. Because he couldn't reconcile the fact that God would be gracious to people he didn't think deserved it. They were different than him. Three times in this book he says, I want to die. You know that Jonah was the only prophet in, in the Bible that actually was sent out to another nation, not just Israel? He was the only one. This book is about the means of God's grace and the, the far reaches of his grace to all people and all places at all time because nobody did anything to deserve it and Jonah couldn't wrap his mind around it. Tim Keller says, Jonah had a problem with the job he was given, but really he had a problem with the one who gave it to him. And what we see is the fundamental problem in the book of Jonah because Jonah didn't grasp the gospel of grace in his own life, he couldn't extend it to others. 
It's a challenge to me. It's a challenge to us. Is if we feel like we can't extend grace, if we are angry instead of celebratory when we see grace, we have to ask the question, do you fully understand the grace that was given to you? Do you fully comprehend it? Or are you catapulting yourself on a pedestal you don't belong on because God trades in the currency of grace? And as followers of Jesus, we're called to live in and live out the grace of God and celebrate it. And so the message of Jonah is one about God's overwhelmingly good creative grace. It's one that challenges my idea of what grace should be and oftentimes reveals some places where I'm not gracious because I got some pride issues. Jonah's a book that hits me kind of square in the middle of what I think about people and their worthiness and their deservingness. And then it comes back around and teaches me to remember the depth of the grace that God showed me when he saved me too. And not to forget that. Because this is what happens. This is the last of our series in Grown Up Gospel. And we've kind of hinted at it all throughout the series. All of these stories point to a bigger picture. All of these stories are fulfilled in Jesus. All of these stories, whether it's Noah and the ark, or whether it's the Red Sea, or whether it's the gospel in, in, in the garden, or whether it's fill in the blank here, all of these reflect the greater picture of God saving. And Jonah, probably more than any, is the most pronounced example pointing to Jesus coming one day. Jesus even quotes him in Matthew. In Matthew 12, he says, Jonah was in three days and three nights in the stomach of a big fish. The son of man will be three days and three nights also in the grave. What, what Jonah does is tell us about the extent of the grace of God. What Jonah does is remind us of what Jesus did. What Jonah does is paint a clear picture of how much we all need Jesus and how much we should celebrate the fact that he came to save. That that's the way that God chases and changes us. So the grace offered through Jesus, who died for us so that we might live. It's a beautiful picture of the point of the gospel in the first place. God chasing and changing his people that started in Genesis 3 and keeps continuing until Jesus comes back. And so here's what I love about the story of Jesus. All of it is what I should say, and I mean that. But, but specifically, I think it's a story where God takes methods of punishment and uses them for means of grace. I think that's what we see in Jonah. So Jesus was crucified. You can read books on how awful the crucifixion process was. You can read books literally on how it was to this day. There has never been a worse form of punishment or torture that mankind has ever come up with. And that's how Jesus died. That's how God died. What we see in the cross is Jesus taking on the absolute worst method of punishment and changing that into the absolute best example of grace that we see. And now we walk around and wear crosses on our neck. Implements of death we wear all around us and put on billboards and put on church buildings because God transformed that method of punishment into a means of grace because now we live and we see the world through the lens of grace as followers of Jesus. And so we're going to end today with communion because it's how we remember the grace of God that we all need because we're all equal at the foot of the cross. And so when Jesus was talking to his disciples the night that he died, he, he gathered them in a room and he said, we have bread and we have wine. And he said, this is going to be representative of the grace that I show you. So if you have elements in front of you now, we're going to take them together and, and then 
leave just a moment where you might reflect and you might think and you might thank God for his grace. So we do this because it reminds us that Jesus is good. It reminds us that we all need grace because if we forget, we default to Jonah and think that we need less of it then or they don't deserve it. It reminds us of who we are in God. So he took some bread and he said, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. Take, eat, and remember. Then he took a cup of wine and he said, every time you drink wine, every time remember that this is my blood shed for you. Never forget my graces in everything you do. That's why he did this over a meal because you eat them every day. He said, take this and drink and remember my blood that was shed for you. Take a minute where you're at and we'll just play some music underneath and remember the grace of God. Be thankful for his grace. Be thankful for Jesus. And celebrate that God was good enough to chase and change us.